Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White and welcome to episode 15 of the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast. In this podcast, I talk with food entrepreneurs, innovators and startups to get behind the scenes and find out what they're doing to build their business and make their mark in the Australian food industry. And in the aftertaste section, I give you a brief insight, learning or secret of success that I've gleaned from my guests' experience that just might help you in your own job or food business. Today, I'm talking with Christy Lokito. She's the founder of The Wonder Snack Company, which makes premium gourmet bar snacks in small batches using real ingredients rather than flavorings. In this episode, you'll hear how, as a self-confessed snackaholic, Christy was underwhelmed by the bland, boring and overly processed range of salty nut snacks available and decided to shake up this category with the creation of the Wonder Snack Company. Christy set about making a range of gourmet savoury snacks from premium ingredients For example, my favourite snack is The Hangover. It's a temptingly savoury sweet blend of duck fat roasted peanuts in maple syrup. After an accidental meeting which gained her a skillful business partner, Christy scaled up using co-manufacturing and soon achieved ranging in retail stores. However, she realised that the costs and challenges of operating in this competitive distribution channel made it one of her least profitable routes to market. Instead, she found profitable inspiration in the bar fridges of five-star premium and luxury hotels who embraced her gourmet snacks across Australia and are now driving expansion of the Wonder Snack Company into Asian hospitality channels. Plus, in this episode, you'll learn about the fragmenting Australian food retail environment and the value of looking for new distribution opportunities beyond the usual grocery store suspects. And before we start, just a quick apology for the audio quality of this episode. This was one of my really early interviews when I was trying out a lot of different recording software, and it's taken a little bit of time to get the sound right. So I know it still fluctuates a lot, but please persevere. It is totally worth it to hear Christy's fascinating journey into savory snacking and the lessons she's learned. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thanks for having me, Susie. Uh, Look, I thought it'd be great to set the scene first and maybe just tell the people who are listening, what do you do and what is your business? I own the Wonder Snack Company and the Wonder Snack Company is a small batch snack business um, that creates its own um, formulations. And we don't use any additives, um, preservatives, or any kind of other flavoring or coloring um, in all of our snack mixes. And the positioning that we often take is snacks that go with your drinks. So wine or whiskey or cocktails. 
And these aren't everyday normal sort of snacks. Do you want to just walk us through the different products you have at the moment? Sure. So we've got three products that we wholesale. So our, our business model is primarily wholesale. Um, we create our own formulations and our own recipes. Um, so we currently have one called The Hangover, for example, and it's a salted peanut mix with duck fat, maple syrup and Worcestershire sauce. So quite, I would say bespoke um, because it is created exclusively for us. So that's one of them. Um, the other one is called Street Cart. That's um, a satay blend. That's actually, the recipe for that is actually based on a satay sauce recipe. And the last one is called the Kamikaze. And it is a Japanese-inspired blend of um, peanuts and almonds coated in spicy miso and Australian honey. They sound delicious and certainly premium gourmet bar snacks. These are not just a fruit and nut mix you'd find in your regular supermarket. Now, let's go back to the start of your startup journey and just tell me what were you doing before you started this business and and how did you get to the point where you thought this would be the right move for you? I've always wanted to have my own business. First of all, I come from a family of um, entrepreneurs and small business owners, and it was always I, I've, I've always known that I wanted to do something along that line. Um, it was just determining the industry, and um, once I got into food, um, I trained as um, a pastry cook. I then went on to set up a, um, a market, a, a farmers market store selling um, seasonal cakes. So I do that on the weekend, and I work in food retail as a side job um, for days a week and that was my life for two years and um, I gave myself the deadline of 2012 to sort of determine whether I wanted to go ahead with the cake business and either go into wholesale or set up a cake shop or if I was going to do something else and um, I think there were limits of what I could do with cakes in terms of shelf life and transportability um, and all those sort of things that, that sort of limited the scope of where I wanted it to be. And because I was working in food retail, I noticed that there was a bit of a gap in the savory food or the savory snack base. Just because when you look at sweets, you get beautiful handmade chocolates, you get exquisite cakes, beautiful confectionery, that's all premium handmade artisan. But when you look at a savory space, it's usually just plain flavored nuts and chips and that's all there is to it. And so I thought, what, what if I were to sort of do something a bit more exciting in this space? And so it's, it started from there, really. Um, so I started literally just by creating batches. I think it was like one kilogram to three kilogram batches in my apartment oven. And so you were really leveraging skills that you had as a pastry chef, but not the sweet side. Did you come up with the recipes all by yourself? Yes, I did. So that's, that's I suppose, that's, the, that's our unique selling point. We do hire a contract manufacturer. But up to this day, I still test all the recipes uh, myself before we go to scale it. Those blends are really, really unique. How did you know what flavors to use? I think with my background in food, it's sort of more about an experimentation more than anything else. I knew the flavors I wanted to get, and it's a good mixture of you know sweet and salty and savory. And so it was all then just about getting the right ingredients for it um, and also the right flavor profile. So you know, some blends take 
me five tries to sort of get the flavor to get the flavors right some for example i've been testing for six months and i am still not satisfied um, with how it turns out so that's you know that's part of the process um sometimes things work sometimes they don't having a food background and having worked as a pastry cook does help because it helps me determine what sort of ingredients could work so obviously you're in your kitchen you're mixing up some samples you've got a good sense of some new and unique flavors when did you get your first break and maybe your first customer that made you think this might be a good business? I remembered um, getting an inquiry through our web form. It was from a multinational catering company and it was the procurement um, manager for Australia and New Zealand. He said, could you please send some samples to this address? And because I've had so many false starts, I thought, oh, I'll send samples, I'll follow up one time, um, and then, look, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. It probably won't go anywhere. And so I did try following up, and she said, yep, we have the samples, we're conducting a tasting, and if we're interested, we'll give you a call back. And I remember thinking, you know what? <laughs> You're not going to call me back, because these things never just happen. And then uh, I think it was around four months after, after that last contact that... It was some forms I remembered. And I said, we're arranging you. Could you fill out these forms and send it to the head office? <laughs> and I thought, hang on. So you're arranging me? Um, so it was, um, it was quite funny because I, I just couldn't believe that they were willing to actually take us on. Because like, this was, I think about, this was a year into uh, my business. So I was out of my home kitchen. I was in a commercial kitchen, but we were still really, really small. So yeah, so that was, um, that was when I sort of thought, you know, this could have legs. This idea could actually take off um, in that direction. Because up to that point, I was just supplying, you know, small, small bars and small shops and mostly owner operated places. So, yes. So that was when I sort of thought, you know what, this might have something to it. Yeah. And, and those smaller owner and operators, did, did you have to literally go around and hit, hit the pavements and knock on doors yourself? I did. Um, so most, um, I did to a certain extent. Um, for, the first, for the first couple of years, a lot of, um, a lot of my business went um, via word of mouth. Um, I did have to sort of, um, if, there's, if there's a place, for example, that's just opened, either you know, a wine store um, or, a, or a gourmet deli that's just opened, that's sort of in the Melbourne um, area. Um, I probably, I, I normally give them a call and I go, look, you know, my name is Christy. I own the Wonder Snack Company and we make small batch snacks. Would you be interested in some samples? Can I come in with some samples? That sort of thing. So that was the extent of, um, the selling that I did. Um, I was quite conscious of the capacity because at that point I was still making everything myself. Um, so it's, uh, I can only supply as much as I could make. And that wasn't a lot. Um, and I sort of had to then from then on hire someone to actually do it for me. Um, and that increased capacity by a little bit. Um, but it was still not great. So we were, I think, a lot of the time um, for the first few years, uh, the business was really hindered by capacity issues just because our products are not... Our products are not hard to make, but they can be very fickle just because a lot of it is handmade. And I tried looking for um, a contract manufacturer for <laughs> almost two years and um, none of them mm-hmm. was willing to work with me because of um, the way the recipes are formulated um, and the fact that it's such a hands-on process. 
So tell me what was turning off those co-manufacturers. What was worrying them about your recipe in particular? So we use a lot of liquid ingredients in our recipes, probably a higher proportion than uh, most of our other brands out there. Uh, most of um, the nut mixes that you see is usually a mixture of nuts and oil and spices. And that's the extent of their mixes. So that's one, that's one thing. I suppose the viscous liquids that we use, things like honey and maple syrup and sweet soy sauce, they don't like those things. The second point is um, our processes. So like I said, our products is mostly handmade. There's a lot of handling involved and they don't like that as well. So what they like to do is they like to put things on one end of the machine and it comes out the other. So it was a lot more handling that they thought was worthwhile. And thirdly, because I insist on manufacturing small batches to retain freshness and quality, they didn't like that either. So, <laughs> so with those three, I got knockbacks um, after knockback. I spoke to factories who said, can you change your recipes? And uh, would you be willing to look into simplifying the recipes and not using so many ingredients and using things like maltodextrin, which is a drying agent. So it absorbs um, excess liquid in your mixture. And it's, um, it's quite a common additive in food manufacturing um, when there's liquid ingredients involved. And that took two years. Was there ever a point, Christy, where you thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to compromise my product. I'm just going to just to get it out the door. No, because if, if I compromise on my products, I won't have a USB because my unique selling point is that our products are bespoke and we don't use any you know, artificial ingredients or additives or um, preservatives. So if you take those things away, I'll just be another nut brand in the market. I won't have my unique selling point. So what did you do? Who did you find eventually? How did you overcome that? This is where luck actually comes in. Um, and I know a lot of people say that luck is a combination of opportunity and preparation, but this was pure luck. <laughs> uh, no, it is. It is. It is. It is. It's a very lucky meeting because um, what happened was I was at an event. So it was quite a small marketplace style event organized by a not-for-profit organization supporting small businesses in the CBD that I belong to. And so they had a day in the middle of winter where the small businesses that were included um, as part of the association were sort of invited to exhibit. And so I thought, oh, look, you know, the most I'll get from this is, you know, some exposure. Maybe, you know, if they like, some, if they like my snacks, they'll probably try and find a stockist. But that was when I actually met um, George. And um, I have to give you a bit of a background. So George um, currently owns shares in the company. So he's an equity um, partner um, in the business. Um, that was how I met him, purely by chance. He wasn't meant to be there. He didn't know about the event. He just strolled in. He tasted my products and I told him about, you know, the difficulty I had with finding a contract manufacturer and, and he started asking about my processes. So at the end of our conversation, he gave me a card and he said, look, I might be able to help you. George's background is he was product developer for Coles before he, had, he set up his own business. So he had a lot of contacts in the manufacturing sectors. And he was able to actually source a smaller contract manufacturer who wasn't making snacks at that time, but who had the capability to do it. Um, and he, we then worked towards um, scaling the recipes and the products. So that's where our relationship started. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been a good one. 
So from a chance meeting, you've actually found a mentor, a business investor, and someone who has unlocked your contract manufacturing challenges. Yes. If I hadn't met him, I probably would have gone um, towards the path of having to set up my own facility, which wasn't what I was going to do because it was going to take up too much time and resources on my part. So you got the contract manufacturer in place. What did that then do for your business? Were you able to, to significantly scale up at that point? Yes. So we had what you'd call teething problems um, to begin with. But after the first run and after several tweaking um, of the recipes, I was, I was completely happy with what they were manufacturing. And so that enabled me to let go of that component and freed up my time to do more active sales and marketing, which were the two components that I have been neglecting in the business um, because I, I simply just didn't have time for it. I then engaged a third-party logistic company to do all my packing and dispatch. So that frees up literally, I would say, about two to three days um, of my working week. And now let's talk about where the product was distributed. So you were saying a bit earlier on, you know, it started off very small cafes and small shops that you yourself could personally go in and sell to. Did you did you ever go down the grocery distribution route? Did you try that or were you tempted by that? We did try it. So, so a distributor approached me. I think that was in within the in the first year of business, and they were a good distributor. I mean, the relationship wasn't what we both expected, um, and so we parted ways. I think it wasn't the right time for us to take on something like that. And so it was just mismatch expectations on both our parts in terms of how the products would move or how long, you know, adoption is going to take um, with each new retailer. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we decided to part ways and... Um, I took all the selling back in-house. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Was was that a point where you thought actually maybe maybe just this product isn't suited to that distribution channel? Maybe there are better opportunities out there? I have. So um, in the beginning of 2016, we lost one of our largest customers that accounted for 30% of our business. The buyer who arranged my products left the company and the new buyer decided that they were going to do it all in-house. So straight away, that was 30% of your business is gone. What did you do? I got into a panic. (laughs) I was really bummed out because I was like, oh, God. And that was a few months after we launched contract manufacturing when we were sort of ready to really scale up. The timing for that was really, really bad. And because we, we haven't had capacity, so I haven't been doing any active selling either so I do you know my sales pipeline was empty what I did then was I analyzed all of our customers and I broke them down into categories so one being retail stores food retail grocery the second one being wine stores or liquor stores and the third being hotels which of those segments that you looked at how did you know which one was more successful while I was analyzing the figures I noticed that one segment outperformed all the other In terms of value per invoice, so value per invoice means that um, the higher the value per invoice, the less I have to deal with because it's like it's average spend per customer. With the few handful of customers that we had, they were spending significantly more. And Christy, did you put that down to either they had very hungry people (laughs) staying in the hotels or is it because once you get a a contract with one group, it, it goes to many hotels? Is that why? No, I think with the hotels that we were working with at that time, they were undergoing renovations. 
And so they wanted Wonder Snacks in all of their new rooms. They cater primarily to corporate travelers because they're a five-star hotel. And so I suppose with high-end corporate travelers, because it's on a corporate account, they don't mind spending a little bit of money on mini bar snacks because, you know, if, if they spend three, $400 on a hotel room, accounts is not going to sort of blink if you spend $10 on a snack. I was actually really surprised that it worked well because I didn't know what mini bar sales were like. And I was very surprised when they kept ordering and sales to that particular hotel that we are still working with three years on, they have increased by 25% year on year. So it's tracking really well. It's time for a quick break now. When we come back, you'll hear how Christy embraced and maximized the distribution of her gourmet bar snacks through premium hotels. And if you like the sound of having a business partner like the talented George that Christy mentioned, well, stay tuned to our sponsor break because George is one of the founders of Bedalia, who is this episode's sponsor. I'd just like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible. It's Bedalia. They're a global food and beverage venture catalyst with decades of FMCG experience. They can help commercialize and accelerate your idea globally and shorten the time to profitability. Did you know that only one in 20 companies survive when trying to upscale and expand their business? That's why this business stage is often called the death zone. To avoid this, Bedalia works with entrepreneurial businesses at precisely the time when support is needed the most, when scaling up nationally or globally. They surround you with specialists and skills that complement your own, like strategic business planning, design and branding, supply strategy, and they can also support in operations, procurement, new product development, quality control, marketing, sales and distribution, and even social media, all tailored to your specific business needs. You can check them out at www.badalia.com. That's B-A-D-A-L-Y-A. And put them to work building your business. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Christy Lokito from the Wonder Snack Company. And you've heard how she identified the hotel segment as her most profitable sales channel and pivoted her business focus as a result. And so I asked Christy whether selling through luxury hotels helped build the premium positioning of her brand more than retail distribution had. Yes, absolutely. It was the right sort of partnership, um, the right alignment um, in terms of branding. Um, and I suppose it works both ways. Like they make the healthy margin out of the, out of those product. And I in turn get to say that, you know, we are ranged in Sofitel, <laughs> for example. It gives the brand credibility um, and it gives us the confidence to sort of then approach other larger hotels as well. And I can imagine you're not also being harassed on a weekly basis to do a half-price promotion, for example. No, exactly. So they don't really do promotions. With retail, the challenge when I didn't have a distributor was that I had to sort of go into each of our stockists to sort of check on, you know, best before, uh, to check that the product hasn't been moved to the bottom shelf, um, all those sort of things. Whereas with the hotels, once you're in, they're really easy to maintain because all they do is send you a purchase order. Every month, I keep them in the loop as to, you know, new product development, new packaging, all those sort of things. 
by way of maintaining relationship. But, you know, that doesn't happen every month. And do they restock the mini bars themselves? You don't have to go in and do that? Yeah, they do that. So they've got um, they've got housekeeping who does that. This is sounding better and better, this channel. <laughs> <laughs> it's good if you can get in. Now let's go back to your products. I want to talk definitely about the packaging and the naming. So tell me a little bit about how did you choose what to make the product look like? You've caught me at a really good time because we're doing a refresh on our stand-up pouches which is what the packaging is um, in currently. But we are also introducing um, a new packaging format that we have designed specifically for the luxury customer in mind. So, you know, my five-star hotels, um, the gifting companies, some wineries um, and gift stores. So um, the new format is going to be a canister with a lid and made of paper-lined foil. So this particular packaging is completely paper-recyclable. It's quite different from the pouches in a way that if you are serving, you know, if you're in your hotel room, for example, you don't have to tip it out into a bowl um, or put your fingers into the small bag. You can simply take off the lid, tear off the film, and it's sort of a serving dish and a packaging in one. So how did you find that new pack? That does sound quite unique. So this is also through George. George, the magic of George. You've come back into the picture. <laughs> okay. What did George do this time? <laughs> so he introduced me to the supplier for this. So we were talking about um, redesigning um, the packaging. And at that point, I had all my pouches redesigned already. And we were just about to press hit on the print run. And George goes, I've got someone I want you to meet. And so he introduced me um, to these guys who are manufacturing the paper-based canisters um, because with our positioning, which is premium, it's a much better look. Did you look at redesign as well? Yeah, I engaged a Melbourne designer to sort of do a, a redesign for me. I was quite specific in what I wanted and I knew the look that I wanted. I mean, I said, look, you know, um, I'd like to keep the logo that I've got, but I would like a different look, a more premium feel um, to this new packaging that we are doing. And so the relationship started from then. So he's created um, illustrations for the new packaging that tells a bit of the story of how the products are conceived. So street cart, for example, has an illustration of a street cart, of a man pushing a street cart. I suppose in, in the premium sector, what you want to do is tell a story about your products and that's what people sort of buy into. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So now you've got the three products, you're doing a massive um, new pack, you've got a new brand design going out the door. What's next? Where is sort of your focus for, for taking this business forward? So since I last spoke with you, Susie, um, something quite exciting has happened. So um, we've engaged a distributor into Singapore. Oh, so um, we will be launching the product with them next month. Oh, that is fascinating. And tell me, how did that come about? Did you get in touch with the distributor? And this was one of those chance meetings as well, although it was at a trade show. So I participated in Food Hotels Asia, which is a trade show that happened in Singapore in May this year. So the Victorian government has a large stand and I was one of the businesses that had a small booth um, within that stand. A gentleman approached me close to the end of the show. So he was looking at our new packaging and he said, can you send me some information? I have a distribution company that supplies to hotels and restaurants and I think this would be perfect. Great. It was completely by chance. So most distributors that attend FHA usually has um, their focus in the supermarkets and in the grocery sector. 
So for that guy to actually find us, that was really lucky as well. I suppose you can say it was partly planned because I had in mind the plan to sort of find a, a distributor or a, a customer in Singapore that's willing to sort of take on my products. And I was looking at the hotel industry. I just didn't realize things would actually take hold so quickly. So I guess it's early foray into Singapore. Are you hoping that opens up a lot of Asia or are you sort of focusing on maybe one country and one area at a time? So this distributor that I work with, they've got a really unique business model. So they do business to business wholesale supply into Singapore, but they also do cross-border retail in the gifting department. So they are going to launch an e-commerce platform geared towards um, corporate gifting. And I believe that that will be cross-border, which means that they would have access um, to all of Asia. That sounds really promising then. So that's a whole new growth channel for you right there. So you've been in the business now for six years. Looking back, is it what you thought it would be? It's getting to what I thought it would be. (laughs) I am happy with the progress so far. But I did feel like I've taken my time. Not that it's a bad thing. I think that it's uh, you need to expand when you're ready. I feel like we are ready now. Um, this year, more than ever, we're in a better position to sort of distribute, you know, in terms of export and um, other avenues. So I think it's taken it's taken longer than I would have liked to get to this stage. But I had numerous things that I need to sort of learn before I was ready. And looking back, I sort of do realize that if I had gotten an export contract, even in the first three years, it would have killed the business. Fast growth is something that's often glorified, um, but fast growth doesn't mean sustainable growth. And I would much rather that the business grow sustainably. And I can say, yes, I'm still running the business, you know, in 10, 20 years time. Now, what's happened with George? Is he still on the scene? Yes, he is. So um, we have meetings every couple of weeks now. Um, and we presented to a premium wine um, retail chain. And George was very much part of that process in terms of negotiations um, and all that sort of thing. So he's still very involved. Um, he has quite a lot of say. <laughs> I value his opinion. And he's always welcome to sort of voice them if he has any concerns or if he has any thoughts about the business. The worst thing that you can do for your business is for have a business partner or have someone involved in the business who agrees with absolutely everything you say 100% of the time um, because that doesn't drive the business to be better. Um, so there is a healthy disagreement from time to time, which is good because it allows me to justify my reasoning behind everything that I do in the business. Yeah, so it's, it's very much a collaborative relationship. He does act um, a lot of the time as a mentor. Well, it works well. Sounds terrific because sometimes food entrepreneurship can be a lonely business. And Christy, just wrapping up, given your experience and that journey you've been on with your business, what advice would you have for other people who might be interested in starting up a, a food or a beverage business for themselves? I say just do it. Don't wait. I think in the first four years of business, I waited for a lot of things to happen. I think I tend to sort of overthink things as well. So in retrospect, I think part of the reason the business grew slower than I had wanted was because I had waited too long in the first four years of the business to expand and scale. And I'm now learning that it's actually better if you just go for it and figure it out on the way rather than make sure that, you know, you've got everything ready first. 
I love that advice. Now, how can people listening find out more about you and your business and where to buy your products? So my email is Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y at wondersnack.com.au. So you can buy our product online. So the website is wondersnack.com.au. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to be watching your space because I do feel like you're right on that edge of just kicking off an international expansion. So I, um, I wish you every luck for the future. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for your time and thanks for having me on the show. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Christy Lokito from the Wondersnack Company and reflect on an insight from her food startup journey. Now, there's a lot from Christy's experiences that I could happily dive into, like her amazing ability to pivot and redirect her business, firstly from cakes to savory snacks, then from retail sales to hotel minibars. Or what about her unwavering perseverance by remaining true to her unique selling proposition of making small product batches using real ingredients rather than folding to the conventions of co-manufacturers who wanted her to change her formulations and use food additives or flavors. Or I could also talk about her good fortune and the meeting and building of a partnership with an experienced mentor. However, today I'm going to talk about Christy's choice of distribution channels for her premium gourmet snacks, because by ending up in minibars of premium hotels, Christy's story suddenly becomes very unique from a lot of the other product ranging stories that we've heard on this podcast. Now, for many food and beverage producers, the ultimate goal seems to be to gain distribution into the two main grocery retailers in Australia, and that is Coles and Woolworths. And that's because they're seen as the best way to scale up a food business nationally. And their ability to do this is undeniably true. There is still a major duopoly in the Australian retail landscape, with Woolworths and Coles holding about 61% share of the total grocery market, according to the Roy Morgan 2018 report. And that means that you'll be able to get your products into a lot more consumer baskets and trolleys if you're ranged in these stores. However, this distribution strategy works only if, and this is the clincher, if your product sells successfully amongst the 20,000 plus other products you're competing against in that store. And just as Christy found out, selling in the national grocery chains is a really demanding task. You've got to have the production scale to meet their order demands. You've got to negotiate ranging and secure a suitable shelf slot. Then you've got to make sure no one else cuts you out of your shelf slot. You've got to fund price promotions to draw attention to your product or gain distribution on a gondola or a side end. You've got to achieve substantial weekly run rate goals. That's the units you sell per week. And you've also got to have a consumer awareness campaign so that people know what you sell and where to find you on shelf, not to mention your packaging also has to stand out and communicate your unique offer. It's so time-consuming, hard and expensive to get all of these factors right. And that's why a lot of new products simply don't thrive in this type of retail environment, 
and end up being delisted at biannual range reviews, often having spent less than six months in store. What I love about Christie's food experience is that she unlocked a whole new sales channel that actually proved to be a much better fit for her product. Now, Christy wanted to make premium gourmet snacks and found a better suited home for them in premium hotels. By gaining placement in the minibars of these hotels, as Christy says, it's hard to get in, but once you do, it's so much easier to maintain. When her business customers are charging $300 or $400 for a room per night, no one is quibbling over a $10 mini bar snack expense like they would be for a packet of $4.49 nuts in Cole's supermarkets. And the hotels aren't pressuring Christy to run regular buy one, get one free price promotions or stock their shelves. In fact, they want their mini bar snacks to be premium, gourmet, bespoke, local, tasty experiences, which just fits beautifully with the Wondersnack Company products and the ethos that Christy has been so determined to deliver to. So what does all this mean for you if you're running or working in a food business? Well, rather than aiming for the usual distribution options when selling your food or beverage, maybe just stop and explore whether there's an alternative sales channel you haven't considered yet, one that your product can really stand out and thrive in. Fortunately, it's a great time to try this strategy because we're experiencing major shifts in the retail food landscape in Australia. The one thing that most predictions about the future of food retailing agree on is that we're facing a major fragmentation in our distribution channels. So what does this mean? Well, we're seeing the rise of discounters, or now called smart retailers, like Aldi, who hold 12% of the Australian grocery retail market. I heard a terrific quote from a friend and innovation colleague of mine recently who said, you know, people used to think you were mad if you shopped at Aldi, and now they think you're mad if you don't. We're also seeing the expansion of online shopping. In fact, it's growing at 24% per annum. That compares to bricks and mortar store growth of only 1.4%. And at last, we're also seeing growth in independent convenience stores. Those little shops on the corner that are selling small batch unique products due to shifts in population concentration and location. So before your food or beverage gets lost in the sea of products on national retailer shelves, think about whether it might be suited for different distribution channels like airlines, online subscriptions, instant delivery services, pharmacy stores, vending machines, fitness centers or farm gate markets, just to name a few options of getting your product within consumers' arms reach. And if you're thinking, yeah, Susie, we get it, but those channels are just not big enough for our business, well, how about considering export? Christie is keeping the Wondersnack company true to its distribution choice of premium hotels and expanding into Asia to fuel the next step change growth for her business. Hopefully, I've opened your mind to considering alternative distribution options for your food or beverage product, rather than simply assuming the usual retail suspects are the right choice for your business, its growth goals, and your capabilities. 
Well, that's it for episode 15. I'd like to thank my guest today, Christy Lokito from the Wonder Snack Company, for sharing her inspiring business story with us and being endlessly patient while I sorted out audio difficulties to get this episode on air. If you'd like to learn more about the Wonder Snack Company products and connect with Christy as one food entrepreneur to another, I'll include her social media links in the episode 15 show notes. And if you've got a hankering to talk to George, I'll also include his company contact details there too. Thank you again for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with a friend and join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 